Welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. So for this week's episode, I have with me the wonderfully talented Donald Woodburn. Now, Donald is a voice coach. He used to be the head of voice at WAPA and he has taught many, 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 I want to emphasize the many, many prominent actors, presenters, war correspondents in um, Australia, also South Africa. Oh my goodness. You could say he really knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Now, as a performer and for people in the industry as well, I think that it is a common conception that we think, oh, a voice coach. So they teach people proper diction and how to project their voice properly and how to speak well in front of a camera or on stage. Well, technically, yes, but... I can say to you, speaking to Donald, going into this um, podcast, it honestly completely changed my mind about voice and voice training, which is a big call and I 100% mean it. Donald is actually doing a course at the Hub Studio, a four-week course starting the 17th of March. And I signed up to do that course after doing this podcast with him. That is not to sell the course. That is just saying how good and just knowledgeable about the voice Donald is. It just inspired me to want more from him. So I don't want to say too much more and give a lot away. I think that you should just listen to the podcast yourself and let Donald speak for himself. But I will say his teaching is centered around a lot of the psychology of an actor or a a presenter or a performer or whoever and finding the truth and believability within someone's voice. That is all I'll say. It's very vague. You're welcome. Um, I'll put the um, link to the course below as well if you wanted to sign up. I'll be there. Come say hi. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hi, Donald. How are you doing today? Oh, Rachel, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Upper inflection on the good. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's dusty. We'll be all right. We'll get through it. That's okay. It's a Saturday. That's why. Well, thank you for coming in um, on a day after you've had a... um, A big night out. An enjoyable night out, I would say. We've all had one or two or, uh, or be- very many that we've lost count of. Um, Too funny. Yes. So you are um, you work in the industry of voice within the entertainment industry. You're a voice coach. You have coached a vast array of um, people in the industry from actors to news presenters to... Um, Frontline war correspondents. Yes. Yeah, so many different people because we all use our voice in the industry. Um, And you've also done um, work with um, professionals in companies and how to use their voice in terms of their work, which is really interesting as well. They don't necessarily have to be in the entertainment industry. Um, So I guess I want to know where 
um, the interest sort of came from in terms of um, being a creative and where your interest in the voice kind of started. Okay, yeah. Um, well, it's an interesting one because I was an actor, and I say was because there's, I have no desire to ever go back to it, but I was working in, I, I studied theatre in South Africa and then I got into a black theatre company in Johannesburg and there were just two of us in the company that were white and every time I went on stage I was incredibly aware of the fact that everybody else on stage had these big voices and I didn't and and so it was you know I, at that stage it didn't make me want to be a voice teacher but I was aware of the fact that I needed to improve something in my own work and so I had the opportunity to go and study at NIDA with Bill Pepper which was amazing and I, I, I took that year off and came to Sydney studied and while I was here I was offered a job back in South Africa um, as head of voice at ABTA and I jumped on that and went back to that and, and then sort of got sucked into training rather than acting and in about five years I'd like I was just so busy teaching that I and and loving it so I never went back to acting for sort of yeah and then of, of course growing up in South Africa at you know, when I was a kid, we were right in the, you know, the, the middle of the dark days of apartheid. And I grew up on a farm in rural KwaZulu-Natal. And again, you know, we were a white family speaking English to each other. And everybody else around us was Zulu speaking Zulu to each other. And I, yeah, there were just two very different relationships to two different languages. Yeah. And they were cultural um, differences and social differences and and that to me once I had the training at NIDA plus my own sort of social context in South Africa I started to and, and my own needs as an actor I started to piece together like ask myself all the questions about that the voice is not just a series of exercises you do lying on the floor to discover <laughs> your voice and to yes. discover how to breathe mm -hmm. that there's a much bigger picture around it and that there are that, that our attitude particularly to English acting or acting in English is that there's it's very tied in to the history of English and the history of class and colonization and mm -hmm. all those things that sit there underneath it and you think oh rubbish I'm just talking to somebody opposite me and I'm going no you get the heritage of your language yeah you know the, the words you, you words change when they're no longer needed but we still have a, a vast history of, of English there that we use and we still have a cultural context every time somebody stands up on stage to start acting they are they they like who's my audience like what do they expect from me how, how well do I have to speak how, how clear do I need to be um, do I need to be formal like all that stuff happens and and I, I was just given this great gift of of being in a world in which I witnessed the moment of coming to speak by different cultures around me. So there are 11 official languages in South Africa. And right. as, I, as I grew up, and, and then once I was working as a professional as well, uh, as a voice coach, I sort of just became increasingly aware of how, how much speech, in a sense, is a political act. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a cultural act. It's not just a good morning, how are you? There's so much more to it than that. 
and and so that be- I, I just became obsessed with that. Really, yeah, for sure. You know, and and discovering, and I, I think if you, I mean, obviously, when one talks about these things, you 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 end up it's there's a trap that you could end up generalizing a culture or or something. But for me, there I do always ask myself the question: Why does this culture speak loudly? Why does this culture speak quietly? Why does this why why in this culture that we think speaks quietly do they speak loud loudly on a Friday night when they're out at the pub? But they won't do that on a Monday morning at work, and they're just all these rules that we're navigating, and and the interesting thing, if we to talk about it from that point of view, is that the actor arrives in the room, and the actor's job is to be heard. In my opinion, if you can't hear the actor, what are they doing on stage? <laughs> and you, you know, so the moment that the actor comes to open their mouth, there's an there's an additional layer of what what. Is this theater? Is it film? Is it large scale? Is it an action movie? Is it like, like, what is it, you know? And there's this thing that has to be understood that it's so broad that the actor's job is to get in there and explore it in all that breadth. And, and I hope that the experience that I've had, and, and, and really it was a gift to, I mean, who would have thought growing up in South Africa in the 1970s would be a gift. But in some way, it's been a gift to my long-term work in that I, I, I really do walk into the room and I go, what's the overall context? Why is this person sounding withheld? Why are they sounding muted? What, what's, when they're loud, why are they pushing? Why can't they just be open and free with their volume? Like, why, why is it an effortful volume? So all that stuff I've kind of been able to view through different filters. And I think it's given me an ability to get into a room and analyze what I'm seeing in front of me in, in a, yeah, I, I don't want to say totally unique because obviously other people in the world that speak more than one language, but I, for me, that's the gift that I feel I have as, as a voice teacher. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's a, an awareness of what people are bringing to the table in that moment, yeah. um, which is incredibly interesting. Um, I want to know, when you um, went back to South Africa after studying at NIDA, did you notice a change um, in the way that you presented your voice um, when you're in South Africa, having now um, known kind of the awareness of what affects one's voice? Oh, I, I'm, I mean, every experience we have changes us, I suppose. So we, we shift and, and move with where we're at. So it must have. Um, it was 1997 that you're asking me about so. <laughs> so to be quite specific I'm not 100% sure but no what, what I became I mean having discovered that I didn't have an enormous big voice I which that's not true now I know that but it, it, I, I started to work out that it was very much about when the body is tight and held, mm. you can't get a sound out. So certainly going back, I became increasingly interested in how to release the body so that yes. the voice could become released. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know whether it what it what it did for me. How, how I how I may or may not have appeared different to others at that point because I then stopped acting anyway, mm. pretty much. So I didn't yeah. really have that to test it against. Yeah, so I guess you were kind of more um, looking at 
what others are doing and why they're sort of doing that as opposed to kind of yeah so like who am i as a performer yeah Yeah. i it sort of immediately became about the other thing Mm -hmm. and also for me i really felt that my voice training was lacking in my um in my theater training Mm -hmm. so i suddenly had this body of knowledge and I was like, well, actually, I have to share it because I wish that I had had someone teach me about voice in this way. And then I had that plus my understanding of the social and political and cultural situation in South Africa. And so it was, it was this really beautiful opportunity to mix and blend all that together to come up with something unique yeah, or something interesting for that particular place. And... Yeah, so that was... So I can't answer your question directly, actually. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's all good. Well, um, we were saying just before, um, we were talking about... It's interesting how um, I know myself as an actor, I've definitely um, had this opinion in the past, is that we look at voice and we look at um, voice classes that we um, come into thinking, oh, well, I'll learn the exercises that warm up my voice. And I'll learn the proper ways to project my voice or I'll, I'll learn techniques to have great diction but that's kind of such a, a small part of the teaching which is of your teaching basically which is that um, it, it's you, you kind of look into the idea of well why do you speak that way what life experiences have you had um, how can we use them or how can we release them in order to, um, I guess, in a, um, bring, bring our full voice to the table and to our performance. So it's very interesting to kind of um, basically have so much of your teaching centre around the psychology of voice, which is, I think, something that a lot of people don't think about in terms of voice. Yeah. Um, there was no question there. That was, <laughs> that was uh, me just talking. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I know, I know where you, you're aiming at. I think, can I, I, I like to do a few sports analogies. Of course. You know, it's obviously, if you take a look at, at sports people, somebody like Federer or Rafael Nadal, they, they have to have a coach that keeps working on technique. Yes. But they also have a sports psychologist on board and they yeah. also have a physiotherapist on board and they have, you know, they have a team around them. So really in terms of voice, you, you sort of have to approach it like each of those areas is all part of what's informing mm. the way you use your voice. It's not just a warm-up and it's not just a big open voice. Yeah. You know, there's got to be relationship, there's got to be context, there's got to be um, yeah, just a much greater understanding of, of why you are studying voice. It's not just a, war- a series of warm-ups. Yeah. It's almost uh, you have to um, be willing to kind of have a deeper understanding of your vo- um, yourself as well. Um, which, yeah, and of the world. Yeah. You know, yourself and yourself in the world. Yes. And, and you need to... Yeah, if you, you need to be alive to the things going on around you. Mm. Because if you're alive to that, you're in response to that. And a responsive voice is more interesting than a presented voice for me. Yes. Ten times, yeah. Well, then, in the context of uh, the journalists and um, newsreaders that you have coached, especially the ones that are dealing with war, um, the war correspondents, um, 
the like the word presenter is in their job title. So how do you go about kind of coaching them into? Well, well, interestingly, sorry to jump in. That's okay. For me, that it isn't. They're not presenters. They are journalists and correspondents versus the presenter that. The, the news anchor that sits, you know, at the desk holding things together in, in a sense. Yes. But yes, they do still have to stand up and talk to a camera at some point. So the idea of, of going into into some sort of presentation mode is there. Uh, I have to say that a lot of my text work, which has become a huge part of what I now do, I think that I've, people come to me more for that than any other area of my work. Or maybe they don't. I don't know why I said that. Um, but... The, what became very clear to me was that with people that are covering conflict, journalists that cover conflict, when they're doing a live crossing from somewhere where something terrible is busy happening, they're often very dynamically involved with that story. Mm-hmm. So what you, if you're going to talk about um, Taylor Square and you know who's coming in with batons on horseback, that's actually something that's busy happening right while they're standing there so what they're describing is immediate and has a very specific location it's not them standing talking forward to a camera about something that they saw and that they are sort of retelling they're in the moment of telling Hmm. and and so i started to unpack what what that's about so in actual fact i got the gift from them more than they got the gift from me i mean it's always a 50 50 relationship Hmm. but it was it was me watching them doing that and then saying, have you noticed that when you were sur- when you surrendered to the story, your voice was open, interesting, dynamic, variable, um, really enlivened? And when you st- were away from the actual conflict and looking back at a camera and just doing a stand-upper, that you were much stiffer, that your voice lost its kind of, its color and its texture and its, its overall dynamic. And, and so the work began, when I worked with journalists, began to be about how do you recreate that story around you? Yeah. So when you're in a booth talking, there still needs to be a 360 degree awareness of that world. You know, the horses did come in from behind you, not from in front of you. So your voice in some way has to reflect that, that moment of the story is behind you. Or, you know, if there were snipers up on a building, your voice needs to be indicating that the snipers were up on a building and just because you're now in a booth you can't let that go you have to kind of keep that geography alive sure and and then the gift from that was that i was i was moving between a broadcaster because i was i was sort of freelancing at the south african broadcasting corporation at the time as well so i was moving between working with broadcasters and working with actors and i just started going oh this is like how did I never see this before? This is a no-brainer. You walk into the classroom and when the, and when the character in, in the acting classroom is talking about um, something that's happened somewhere else in the world or wants you to pick something up, they actually have to talk about a three-dimensional world around them. So it, it sort of became my way in to getting rid of the text and well, getting rid of it, but to step away from the text and materialize the text so that the words being used were being used to reference the material world rather than the play that they were learned from or the book that they were learned from. So it's not about reverence to the author or reverence to the theatre. It's it's about this character literally is talking about walking upstairs. Well, you had you need to see the stairs that you're walking up, otherwise the voice doesn't walk up the stairs with you. It, yeah. it flatlines and walks up the stairs. 
which is very boring. Sure. So that was the, I don't know how we ended up talking about that, but that <laughs> in terms of, that was the gift to me from working with, um, working with journalists. And yeah, that, interesting, uh, little diversions. Mm. Um, I was, I worked with a, a, a journalist in South Africa for a long period of time and she covers the Middle East quite extensively. And I just used to say to her all the time, your smile doesn't work for me because you're telling me about horrible things in the world and there's a smile in your face which tells me that you're still worried about what people think of you mm-hmm. when the camera's rolling, when really we're talking about bombs and mayhem and destruction and war. I don't personally want to care about you. I want to care about the war. And she was fantastic to work with, by the way. She, it, like, she took everything on board, always. But that just kept creeping in. It kept creeping back in and creeping back in. And one day, she was standing somewhere where a, a missile had been launched from one border into another country, and, it, and she was doing a live crossing, and it exploded like 150 meters oh behind God. her. And as soon as the crossing was done, she phoned me <laughs> and she said, you'll be very pleased to know, Donald, that I finally wiped the smile off my face. <laughs> she said, I get what you've been saying to me. And it, and it sort of, so in some instances, it does take something that dramatic for us to change. And so that comes back, I suppose, to the psychology behind the voice, if we go back to where we started, in that it is this thing of, you have to be ready to change, actually. Yes. Because if you're not, you can do as much work with somebody as, as, you, as you want to. But until you are ready to do that, you, can't, you don't move into that next realm. And that's about being prepared to be vulnerable, to be seen, to be witnessed, to be open to not being perfect. You know, all that sort of stuff's got to be there. And, and how, how is an actor? Do you do that when every bloody time you want to do something you've got to go and audition again you've got to do another self-tape it's just like you just feel like you're putting yourself up for judgment all the time and so it's very I'm always I I mean I just think actors are amazing for that reason I I don't know if any other person in the world had to continuously do that I don't think there'd be many people who ever went to work and so there, there is something about needing to get to the point where you go well this is what I can give you today right now this is what you can get from me if I try and give you any more than that I'm going to sound like I'm deliberately layering something in and then at that moment you sound less like what you were trying to sound like because you put this added layer on of effort and you're one degree separated from what you were trying to do and then you worry about whether you're sitting properly or standing upright or whether you've, you've and all those things for me are just degrees of separation from your truth and from the moment of immediacy. And that that's a it's like how do you yeah, you've got you've got to learn psychologically to in some in some ways you've got to give a lot of shits and in other ways you're not gonna not give a shit at all. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just timing that, it's knowing when and for me that's about the homework. Yeah. It's like do the homework so that when the moment arrives you're, you're, you're already good enough. You don't have to show us your homework. You just, you go, at this moment, this is all I can show you because that's the homework I've done. If I try and do any more, I'm just kidding you. I'm kidding myself and I'm kidding you. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it just comes back to that self-awareness, doesn't it? I, I think, you know, to be a successful actor, you absolutely have to be aware 
of yourself. And then, well, what keeps kind of coming up for me when you speak about that stuff is what is your kind of opinion then on um, therapy and seeing a psychologist then? Is that something that um, you think is necessary in order to kind of move all of the stuff away in order to get to the core of oh, your I, I'm not, No, I'm not 100% sure about that. I think everyone should see a therapist anyway whoever you are, yes. the prime minister or whatever, go, go and see a therapist. Um, I, do I think it's necessary for an actor to do that? I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think lots of actors get damaged and I think a lot of what we do in, in our world is to unearth things all the time. Yeah. And I think there's lots of training methodologies that deliberately take you back to things that have happened in your life. And I worry... I personally worry about that stuff because I, so again, make it personal. If I was to keep going back to my wounds, I don't think that I'm necessarily getting to move on from them Yes. or to live with, surely there are other things that have made me who I am today, not just those wounds. So yeah, like if, so I, one of the things about targeting that I like how do we jump to targeting after asking about therapists? <laughs> is that the object outside you, the thing that you are dealing with stimulates you anyway because we have a relationship with everything. So if you are able to be stimulated by the environment around you, as an actor, you should be able to be as enlivened and as real and as emotionally present, being moved by something else that's not necessarily related to your own deep traumas. So, but everyone's different and every actor finds a different way in. So so certainly if you're finding a way in and it's producing problems in your life you should see a therapist to help you cope with what the, those demands are in the same way that if you're a sports person again playing a game where you get hurt often mm -hmm. you have to have a physiotherapist and a chiropractor and a medical team to help you through those traumas so that you can go on doing what it is you do yeah and some of those people are paid tens of millions of dollars to do these things that are hurting them and some actors get paid tens of millions of dollars to do films with content that will hurt them so yes get a therapist mm. but don't assume that that's the way into no, acting it's not I just it. think it's yeah, part yeah. of I think it's part of a toolkit that an actor needs to, to help stay stay healthy yes and and I guess what I, I kind of meant is that I guess a therapist is one tool that you can use but I think um, obviously um, it's kind of evident that you do have to have uh, kind of go into yourself and discover truly who you are as a person and you know the events that have affected yeah. your life or or provocatively to take a look at a picture of something else very traumatic that's not related to me at all mm -hmm. And to discover that I have a very strong empathetic reaction yes. to that picture. Mm -hmm. So there's that picture of a street execution in Vietnam. And every time I see it, I, it, it, I've, you know, I've never been to Vietnam. And it just like, boof, like I'm, I, it, I'm woken up by it. Yeah. And I'm immediately in relationship to injustice. And I'm, and and. And obviously those things have something to do with injustices that I have witnessed in my own life or experienced. Yes. But I'm not in the pain of that. 
I'm actually in shock at the other thing. And so I'm in action to create change. And I think if, if you really think about what theatre, I, I think, well, the stuff that I like watching is usually about something that's asking you to be more present in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, often I love comedies too, but, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, but in terms of serious drama, like for me, that, that image is enough to get me ready. Yes. I don't necessarily need to go and delve into my trauma to wake up to get that emotional ticker working. Yes. Well, uh, on that note of comedy, I really love talking about this topic. It's something that I find very intriguing is the idea that comedy can really open up an avenue to uh, talk about really serious and moving things because it kind of gives you permission to almost come at it in a light-hearted sense rather than kind of sitting down with someone and being like, let's talk about death. Yeah, you know, yeah. so um, I find that very interesting, and that laughter and finding something funny can open up this realm of oh, like we can we, let's you know joke about suicide and that sort of thing, and it, it gives people permission to take a breath and then yeah. express their experiences um, with that topic um, from a place of kind of non-judgment, I guess. Um, So, yeah, I I always find that very interesting with comedy. Comedy, for me, one of the things about laughter is, okay, if we bring this back to the voice. (laughs) um, (laughs) Finally. (laughs) No, 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 no. no, I think it's it's worthwhile. Yeah. In order to cry, like it's genuine sobbing Mm -hmm. or hilarious laughter there's a lot of breath movement and there's a lot of physical movement to allow that breath to get into your body and so if you think about it when when you are nearly peeing your pants laughing you don't stay standing up straight you end up having to you bend over or you lean on your knees or sometimes you're you're giggling so hilariously you have to lie on the floor because you can't stand up anymore and that's because you have to let those muscles that are holding onto the bones to keep you up straight mm. or to keep you upright, uh, they have to let go of the bones because they need to get involved in moving the air and expressing the, the hilarity. So they let go. And in the moment of letting go, when, when the muscles let go, emotion begins to move as well. So, excuse me. Um, so what you've got is this sense of sobbing is the same thing. You go to a funeral, you get to a point at which you can no longer hold back the tears because the pain is overwhelming. And when people begin to cry, you see them drop down into sitting so that those same muscles that were holding onto the spine and the ribs, etc., can let go to allow that enormous emotion to happen. So both of those are opening up emotional space. And I think that's what you were saying about comedy allowing us when we joke in order to talk about death it is actually in some way about making that opening that space up inside you for Mm. you to have an emotional experience to create the space for to have that conversation and it's is you know when we just talk seriously about things all the time it's it's a little bit indulgent you know it's like let's be serious people have a serious conversation (laughs) about this you know it's like Thank God for Ricky Gervais um, at the Golden Globes because it's sort mm-hmm. of just 
all that were you know overly worthy sort of thing around I am a good actor or I am a good director or whatever it is he just sort of cuts through that and goes no you're making movies people you're you're a good actor but you're just you're making movies you know there's it's an intriguing balance about you know for sure yeah how, how do we how do we engage with communication well how many people are on the planet? That's how many different ways there are to engage <laughs> with communication <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you know, from, from whatever perspective. But that's yes. really what we have to be open to. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I know last week we were briefly speaking about um, you were saying to me how um, you I, correct me if I'm wrong in saying this. You don't necessarily want an actor to stand up straight and do a voice exercise where they're, you know, projecting out to the the person at the back of the theatre it was more you were saying to me you know how how do you normally stand or sit when you're speaking to someone you're not standing up straight you're not putting your arms above your head and yeah. you know doing a siren sort of thing um so that that kind of ties into the creating the space for where the voice will yeah sit, I guess. well i again i'll go back to the uncomfortable part of my life experiences in terms of apartheid in South Africa and cheap labour and all horrendous things that no one really wants to talk about, but mm. or everyone should talk about, whichever way around that is. But I was very aware on the farm that when labourers were working, they were also singing. So if you're digging potatoes and singing at the same time you're not standing upright yeah you know you're and yet there is this amazing sound happening and that person singing like that for four five six seven eight hours of the day and they're not vocally tired at the end of that so what's that actually about in terms of the body like i you know and if and if we take it away from that context which is really depressing and yeah whatever if if you go bushwalking you can't stand up straight when you talk to the other person that you're walking with because you've got to make sure you don't trip on something or fall in a hole or stand on a brown snake or whatever it is you've just mm -hmm. so you're living in this dynamic shifting of your body like it's never in the same position for longer than a split second and so for me the voice needs to be made in every position and and that's what intrigues me so in actual fact one of my favorite movement people does developmental movement sequences and for me they are some of the most exciting things that i've witnessed to do while doing a voice warm-up because your body is continuously in the developmental movement process of coming from lying down to standing up which is the journey of baby to you know to coming to stand and the, and the sound being made in all those shapes and positions. So I think that there's a really exciting way to explore voice that's not to do with stillness or correct alignment, whatever, yes. you know, in inverted commas, because what is that? But yeah, so, so and, and you were talking a bit about volume as well, comes back to my experience of louder cultures. It's not that those people are projecting, they're just talking louder, in proximity so mm. I always talk about volume and proximity like if you if you're having an argument with somebody your voice gets louder but they haven't suddenly 
they're not suddenly standing 200 meters away from you. You're not getting loud because there's distance. Yes. You're, you're louder because you're in whatever's heated up the moment, whether it's laughter or anger or whatever it is, the, the relationship is intensified between the two people and the volume has arrived out of that intensification. So if you want to be heard in the theater, it's volume and proximity, we're going to hear that. It, the, the idea of projection for me is problematic. And then obviously, you, you know, you don't want to squeeze for volume. It's sort of the open resonant sound. But it's, it is, I, I, if I watch an actor projecting their voice, I'm going, you're asking me to look at the point that your voice is going to. As an audience member, that's where you're asking me to look. But I've paid money to watch you talk to the person on stage opposite you. So if you're projecting, I'm going, why are you talking to the back of the audience? I, I need you to get on with unless you're doing graft, of course. Um, but I <laughs> but I need you to I need you to get back into relationship so that I can witness what's going on between the two of you, not what's going on past the two of you. That's so interesting because I can imagine so many people listening to this right now saying, Donald, what do you mean you don't want me to project as a theatre actor? Because <laughs> that's literally one of the first things you learn as an actor studying theatre. Just get on a bus in Sydney and there's always someone on the bus talking so that everybody else on the bus can hear them and that's mm -hmm. not their intention. Yes. They're filling that bus. Yes. But they're not trying to fill that bus. So the, the actor needs to fill that theatre but not try to fill that theatre. And that's about being prepared to be open, resonant, and and louder. I mean, lots of people don't like the word loud, but yes. quite frankly, if you're going to be heard, there needs to be something in there that, that's, that can be heard. Yeah. yeah, I think that's such an interesting point because, you know, when explained, it completely makes sense. Although I think... Uh, just, you know, if someone were to read that point or just hear that sentence, I think they would think, that's a bit controversial, <laughs> that sort of thing. So um, I, your teaching very much encompasses that idea, um, which is very interesting. And um, I'm just going to jump in. Once yeah, you can yeah. make noise freely, yes. you can also speak quietly freely. Yeah. So it's about opening it up. Then you've got access to the choices you want. Because if you're going to end up doing film, you probably not, if you're auditioning for American roles, going to be expected to be that large no. in the film context. So, But once you are able to make sound freely at scale, it's easier to scale back that sound and still be quite dynamic in a small way. But if you, if you are scared of making that big sound, how do you get to a point in a play where, where rage is expected of you mm. if you are not able to be at scale with ease. Does that make sense? Yes. So anything that's about projecting for me often comes with tension. Whereas if you witness two people having a, a screaming match with each other, they're not projecting. There is something deeply intense and, and uncomfortable happening in proximity yeah and and that's so that, that's what fascinates me for sure and i think you know in in the people that you have coached um and the um testimonials that they've given you um it is super evident that this works that this you know 
the understanding of this technique of voice um, is, you know, it opens up um, you as a performer to success because I just, I don't see how basically you could not succeed if, you know. Look, I, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm right, but actually... <laughs> <laughs> the best. Same. No, no. Um, but it's no. I, I do think that it's it's different coaches for different personalities as well. Yes. So to some extent, you know, the fabulous testimonials that I have got are from people that needed to hear what I was saying. For sure. So it, you know, the glove fits, and that's the kind of actor they probably wanted to be anyway. Mm-hmm. So my work was a useful pathway for them towards what they wanted to do anyway. It helped them solidify in their minds that, yes, that was what they wanted to do. Mm. But there are other people that are just going to go, there's no ways I could do what you're asking me to do, Donald. It's not, it doesn't fit me. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the things to be prepared to do is to refer people on. Like if, if it's not what they want, if they really are wanting something different, it's useful to know who's doing that other thing because once they've, they're being taught by that person, that glove will fit and their confidence will come anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, I've enjoyed being able to find those people that respond to my material. And I've, yeah, it's been joyful working with them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, you've, you've had a, a while to kind of perfect. I don't think we've mentioned in this episode, but you you um, taught at Whopper for ten years, <laughs> teaching <laughs> just less than ten, <laughs> just casually. But yeah, I was I was um, in Perth from twenty ten until twenty twenty. Yes, and um, I travelled at the end of teaching at Whopper, which was the end of twenty eighteen. So twenty nineteen, I wasn't working there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was there for ten years, and in essence, ten years, and worked with that group of actors over that period of time. Yes. And so it is. It ends up being more than ten years of actors because obviously it's the first and the second year, and you've left, and they're still going through the process. Yeah. So there's that large number of people, and I worked into the acting and music theatre departments and Aboriginal performance, and into broadcasting at ECU. So there, there are a fair number of people that I've worked with in that time, and and it, and it's exciting to to see, you know, who's going where and and what they're achieving. Oh, for sure. And how different those people are like the, the difference between say Harry Richardson and George Puller as personality types and as looks wise etc you just go the industry Angela Punch McGregor always said to me the industry will decide <laughs> like we're here to train the industry will decide and I I absolutely agree with that mm. you know it's like yeah yeah I think it's exciting, though, that we can have such a vast difference of people and personalities in the industry. And, yeah. you know, it is just like, well, what, what's the new flavour of the day, almost? And also, if you are going to ultimately represent the world that exists, you have to have a diversity of body shape, gender, sexuality, you know, race, etc., in order to be able to represent that. So, mm-hmm. you, you you know, you sort of have to look around you and go, yes, that, of course. Yes. You know, and and it's, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I'd like to see change more in, in the world of acting is, if, like, when I watch 
British television, not everyone is glamorous looking and not everyone has perfect teeth. That's what I love. That's why yeah. I think um, British comedies are so funny is because they're normal, regular people going through these hilarious scenarios and it makes it all the more funny because they're not beautiful. Well, I just absolutely. I love that. And, and, you know, some people are gorgeous and some of us look like hobbits. And so... <laughs> You're um, in the gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> in Hobbiton. Um, so it, it is the sense of it's lovely when you watch something on TV and there's somebody that's not perfect. Yes. And it's so it's so breathtaking. Mm-hmm. You know, it it yeah, Secrets and Lies for me as a film was 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 that. It deep, you know, profound impact on me. Mhm. And it's because not everyone in the film was spectacularly gorgeous looking. They were just real people going through a really shit time. Yeah. Someone, um, I was watching Steve Buscemi in um, a TV show the other day and we were, I was speaking to someone about Steve Buscemi. Um, and obviously Steve Buscemi is um, a kind of straight, yeah. Not I don't want to... <laughs> no, he's not, he's, he's he's not, not your regular. classical Hollywood, yes. good-looking, um, you know... Leading man yeah. kind of vibe. He's got those big eyes and um, he kind of always... He's still got a jawline. Though. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's a classic example of, you know, we need those sorts of people yep. in um, productions because they bring flavour and truth. Well, isn't it interesting it? that Charlize Theron's Oscar is... For the role where she had to get ugly. Yes. And I mean, which leaps us straight into the next part of my work. I I do a lot of work around the idea of ugly sound, okay. around the idea of ugly images, because I think we get taught to stand up straight and smile and look nice and, mm-hmm. and be polite. And if you're having a tantrum, go to your room until you're a nice person and then you can come back and join the rest of us. And all that sort of stuff happens that edits our ability to actually express the ugly. So if, yeah, that's just a major part of my work. I think yeah. that we have to find that again because if we, if we find it, the word is fuller because it has its dark side and its light side. And if mm-hmm. we just deal with the light side of language all the time, we just get these light sounds and the pretty open airy sounds but where's where's the weight underneath that Mm. you know where's the thing that creates intrigue or difficulty or you know what are we trying if if there's no darkness and ugliness what are we trying to resolve yes you know if i don't hear it in the voice i'm going well you've already resolved it yeah so why am i watching this play because this is obviously not impacting on you anymore Mm. well it's finding the truth in that moment yeah um and an example that you gave me last week was um, you're talking about when you're on a, on the bus and someone were in South Africa, um, not in Sydney, um, <laughs> and someone was pointing a gun at you. I think no, I wasn't was... on the bus. No, no. Oh, okay. That was outside <laughs> a friend of mine's house. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was fun. Yes, um, um, and you were saying that you kind of discovered how you would react in that moment and what your voice would do and then I tied it into a very um not similar at all example (laughs) of when um uh, recently a possum 
um, <laughs> trying to attack me. And I discovered in that moment what my um, voice in shock sounds like. Yeah. So, Well, uh, for me, that this comes back to in that moment of shock and horror and trauma, we shed, we shed the layers of presentation. Mm-hmm. How I wish to be perceived is suddenly no longer important. And there's something really quite... I think every actor should be not having a gun put to their head, but every actor should be out there trying to find a way to um, to discover what it's like to mm. shed. I think that people drink on a Friday night at the end of the week at the pub because it's a way of shedding the layers of what they've held on to all week that are a part of a presentation of themselves rather than a truth of themselves. But as an actor, you've got to be able to find that space so so that the words allowed to exist in its essence rather than coated with your niceties. Mm. Yeah, I th- well, I think automatically just being a person living in the world, eventually you will come across those moments, I yeah. guess. Yeah, no, you will, and but we see them all day anyway. Yeah, like when 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 you see footage from war zones or from natural disasters. I mean, we do witness the stripping away anyway. Like, I don't think... I would rather never have had a gun pointed at me. But So I don't... I, I, I could quite happily have <laughs> still taught what I teach without that having <laughs> happened. So I think there are ways to get there without having to go through the trauma. But it is about understanding what shock and, and those things, how they strip away the things that don't matter. Oh, yes. And, and when the things that don't matter aren't there... What do we sound like? Yeah. And that, that's a really... In, that's the vulnerable space. That's about being witnessed in your vulnerability. Yeah. And I think in those moments you don't mind being witnessed in your vulnerability because the event is bigger than you need to save face or to have an appearance of something. And so the, the being witnessed in that moment is, in, is profound. Hmm. It's sorry to bring it back to death. Um, <laughs> don't know why it keeps coming up. Um, well, we're all gonna die. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> it's coming. Um, it, well, it's almost like when you um, get the news that someone has died, someone whether they're close to you, um, and in that moment, nothing else really matters, does it? That's yeah. all. That's an all-consuming kind of moment, and um, you know. Um, I've I've been through moments where um, someone has died, and that moment lasts for days to you know weeks of yeah. I wish the world would stop because I need to deal with this thing that is the most important thing now. So in that sense, you know, you're always going to come across death and 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 to put it into the theatre context or into the acting context, isn't that in essence what the characters in all of great plays and all the great works, they're in the process of dealing with something that has that sort of magnitude in their lives. Yes. And so the need to be able to strip away the outside layers, to be sitting in that space is huge. Mm. You know, that that's really, for me, what, what has... Yeah, I, that, that's what interests me, yeah, is who we are in those moments. Mm. And I, well, I think that's why it makes plays interesting because otherwise we're just making plays about how you did your laundry, mm. and it's like, well, I um, 
I do that as well, so um, <laughs> I know how that works. Um, I want to know, um, obviously, because you are, uh, this is all very much like very deep stuff that can, for a performer, bring up a lot of things that they might not have known were kind of in themselves. And you as a coach, obviously facilitating them to deal with those things, but also you have to be mindful of how you are in that moment and you take those things on. I wonder how you um, kind of deal with that as a person. Well, alcohol last night. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you just have to have really good friendships so you can talk to people about what's going on. Yeah. Like if you, if you shed it by sharing it, it does take some of the burden away. Mm. But obviously you don't go home and say, so-and-so in class today. <laughs> you, know, you can't kind of talk about the individual, but no. you can talk about what's going on in terms of what you're having to carry and burdens, etc. Yes. Is that good something... Colleagues, good colleagues. You need good colleagues. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that you discovered um, very quickly when you started with this work? Or um, was it something that you were aware of before you started the work? Oh... Um, I suppose just being an actor and having trained, you sort of already in that. So I didn't even have to think about it. It's just part of the territory, I think. Yeah, and, sure. And it, yeah. So nothing unusual or... or I, I would say that I think it's critical that you have integrity around those issues. And that when people are vulnerable, that you don't abuse it. That it that it doesn't become a tool by which you can then manipulate that person. I think that there's a bit too much of that going on <laughs> in the world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's why I say good colleagues. You yeah. know, really important people that you can go to and know that when you're working through that, that it doesn't become something that... That is ammunition. Hmm, for sure. Yeah, and that's about caring. And so I think it's 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 empathy. Like you, your job as a human being really is, I think, is to to function in empathy. I agree. I agree with that. I think, um, yeah, it gives a lot of purpose to one's life as well. Um, and the opposite of that, really makes for an unhappy lifestyle I yeah. think I yeah I suppose if I were to talk about one more thing I would just say as an actor try not to sound clever mm. like when there's a word whatever you're saying that how do the most people understand that word how can you say it so that the majority of people in the room understand it rather than how can you say it so that it's so unique and so different which when one does that you sort of get pulled away from the crowd like when, if you use the language as if everyone's using it, it's sort of a bit like crowd surfing. It's like <laughs> carried around by the audience, you know. But you try yes. and make yourself special and sound interesting because you're using this unique term. Yes. Then there's you're not crowd surfing anymore. You're very lonely. And I think as an actor, we the great joy comes when the whole room is with you in that moment. So if my parting thing would be find out how to say what you're saying simply and the simpler it is the more of us 
will meet you on that journey and we will ride that together mm. and that's when you'll have us eating out the palm of your hand but if you try to be clever I'm just halfway through I'm going to go you know what I've got a very clever washing machine at home I'd rather be <laughs> watching it spin you yes. know yeah, yeah. than sitting here watching you spin some rubbish that's not really connecting with me at all yes yeah. well I guess that comes from the idea that um, if you're trying to sound clever that comes maybe from a place of arrogance and well, you certainly are likes. you're certainly asking to be admired for something yes and I don't think that that that, that ask has anything to do with the character in that moment mm. not very often anyway mm. um, yeah it's uh, I had something in my brain just then and then it's gone <laughs> I'm, I'm still picturing the actor crowd surfing yeah. myself <laughs> so that sounded really fun why can't we do that <laughs> Okay, well, I think we can wrap it up. Yeah, there, thank you. That we? was lovely. It was thank really you. great chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for being here. You're actually um, doing a um, four-week class at the Hub Studio from the 17th of March, I believe it is. Yes, um, I think that's correct. I have yes, my diary here. But that's yeah. okay. I double-checked it before we started. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, people can jump on that. There are limited spots available. So, um, But it will be a very exciting class encompassing a lot of what we've spoken about today so I think it's very worthwhile if you're a performer um, and this resonated with you jump onto it um, and yeah well thank you again for um, being here and we'll chat to you soon okay my pleasure cheers